Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. My wife and I bought our first house. We've been married for a couple of years. Uh, the rentals we've been living in before that had the appliances included. So when we got the first house, we also got to buy our first refrigerator, washer, dryer, all that fun stuff. So remember, we're moving in on a Friday. Washer and dryer were getting delivered on Monday. And Erica decided that she did not like any of the faucets in the house, so we needed to take them all out. And rather than doing like one faucet, starting and completing it, she figured out how to get the one off, and so then she just went to the house and took off every faucet from every sink. So as we're moving in, we have no working sinks in the house. We're moving in, we're unpacking, we're doing all that fun stuff. It gets late, we get tired, it's time to go to bed. No working sink. So I decide I'm going to be super husband. I'm going to get up, and I'm going to go to the bathroom, and I'm going to work, and I'm going to fix her sink. I'm going to get that thing installed while she's sleeping so she could wake up to a nice surprise. I, uh, I would not classify myself as a super handy person. Okay, I can put a nail in a wall. It may not be where you want the nail to go, but I can put it in the wall. That's about the extent of my skill. But I'm like, I'm going to figure this thing out. So I had gone through when she was taking off all the faucets and turned the water valve off to each of the pipes for each sink. What I didn't know is that she had gone back behind me and turned the valve back on to one of them. It just so happened to be the sink that I was trying to install. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, I'm going to figure this thing out. I'm getting ready to click, and I hear this loud pop, and water just starts spraying out, of the, out from under the sink onto me and everywhere. And I'm like, okay, because I thought the valve was off, and I heard a loud pop. I'm like, I just burst a pipe. So this is not great. So I called my dad, uh, who, uh, remember the passage in James where it talks about being like quick to listen and slow to speak? Like he took that way too literally. And so, like, if you ask him, like, hey, how was your day? He'll look at you for, like, four minutes before he actually responds. And, like, man, I baked a pizza while I was waiting for you to say good. Like, that's a long... So I call him, and he's like, uh, I'm like, Dad, I don't have time for your, like, slow response nonsense right now. I need you to tell me, how do I turn the water off to the whole house? Like, I got water coming at me. Like, what do I do? And he's like, uh, And I'm like, no, listen, I'm reenacting Noah's flood in my home. What do I need to do? Now, in fairness to him, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, so he may have been asleep when I called. But he really let me down. He had an opportunity to help me out, to fix the situation. He missed it real bad. Erica, at this point, she wakes up. She knows immediately what happened because she turned the pipe back on. She goes in. She turns the valve. Water stops. At this point, my dad's awake. He's like, okay, so what you doing? I'm like, I don't need you anymore. You had your chance. Goodbye. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Done. Now, the water has stopped, but the bathroom floor has got like two inches of water like pooled up in it. And I'm like, well, it's threatening to kind of pass that little thresholdy thing that they put between carpet and tile or linoleum. And I'm like, I don't want it to soak the carpet and then get all that mold and stuff. So I'm like, I got to act quickly. This is a time for action. So I run out to where all of the towels and washcloths and hand towels that we own are sitting. I, pot, I pick them all up in a big bear hug and I start walking with them. And I toss them onto the floor, 
to dry up the big mess. And as I start throwing them all at once, I hear Erica go, no. So the thing is, Erica likes white bath towels, but our kitchen decor, we had red dish rags. And I had always just been under the assumption that the whole like color bleeding thing, which is something that laundry companies told you to sell more expensive detergent, apparently not. So everything immediately just turns pink. And our washer and dryer don't come until Monday. So we have two days in a new home with no towels, no washcloths to clean ourselves or anything else. Everything is pink and we can't even clean the pink things because we don't have a washer and dryer to do so. What I learned in this moment is I should not mess with plumbing. And sometimes when you try to solve a problem, the way in which you go about trying to solve the problem makes it so much worse which is kind of what we see in Habakkuk's life. So if you've got a Bible or Bible app, we're in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. If you're kind of new to this series, uh, Habakkuk is a th small minor prophet in the Old Testament. It's three chapters long. We're on week three. We're still in chapter 1, so we are trucking right along. Uh, last week, Pastor Mark got us into the text where we saw the, essentially Habakkuk's first complaint and then God's response to that complaint. And his first complaint is basically just why like, so, uh, if you remember the time, Josiah is king of Judah. He is a good, godly leader. He's leading people back to God. He's creating reform. Judah is on the verge of a national revival. Everything is going in the right direction. It's looking great. And then Habakkuk dies, or not Habakkuk, Josiah dies in battle. His sons take over, almost immediately start leading the nation back into idolatry, and Habakkuk is angry. He is frustrated. He is confused. And the, the problem of struggle, suffering, of evil is, is bothering him in this really deep way, which is something we can all like relate with, right? Like when you see injustice, when we see suffering, when we see things that are just like, well, there's something in us that just kind of innately goes like, this is not how it's supposed to be. We get that that's how it is, but we just, some part of us knows that it's wrong. So Habakkuk cries out to God. So why do you let your people behave like this? Why do you tolerate wickedness and sinfulness among them? He goes, God, look at all the injustice in the world. I know you see it. Why aren't you doing anything about it? And so Habakkuk begins his address to God, pleading with God to act. And he asks, he goes, how long? Oh, Lord, will you sit idly by and do nothing while wickedness and injustice reign? And so then God responds, oh, I'm not idle. I'm going to do something. Remember those Chaldeans? We refer to them as Babylonians. Those wicked, ruthless, brutal, violent people. Yeah, I'm building them up, and I'm going to use them as an instrument to bring judgment upon my people. And back is like, oh, wait, wait, hold on, what? No, no, that's God. Hold on, let me explain. I, that's not a solution. That's a bigger problem. Okay, so he starts, he addresses God, God gives him an answer, and Habakkuk does not like the answer. And so that's what leads us into verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? 
<laughs> this is some supremely passive-aggressive stuff. So what he does is he opens with some flattery. It is empty, hollow flattery. And with it, in the same breath, he's also essentially accusing God of being unjust. See, Habakkuk, though, he has a problem because his initial complaint, his opener was, God, you're not doing anything about wickedness. And God says, oh, I'm doing something about wickedness. Now Habakkuk's like, well, I kind of put myself in this corner. Uh, okay, let me back up and try this again. I don't like what you're doing about wickedness. See, Judah was corrupt, Judah was unjust, and they were deserving of judgment. Habakkuk is not surprised that judgment is coming. He's surprised that judgment is coming at the hands of a wicked people like Babylon. And he goes, whoa, whoa hold on, God. I, I, I hear what you're saying, but this is, let me just stop it. <laughs> we're bad. I get it. We're bad. What's coming? We deserve that, but they are worse you can't use them to punish us. They're worse than we are. That doesn't make sense. See, Babylon was a violent, brutal, almost sadistic people. They had a reputation for their psychological warfare. See, when Babylon invaded, they would mass impale people on spikes. They would cut off their enemies' hands, cut out their tongues, or cut off their heads. When they cut off their heads, what they liked to do was to create a decorative display where they stacked the heads together like an art design of doom. They skinned people alive, which takes a special degree of wickedness to be able to stomach. And it wasn't just the warriors who fought against them. When they came through, they burned, pillaged, and destroyed elderly, women, children, for those that surrendered, they would strip them naked, chain them together, and parade them through the capital just to shame them. They were brutal. They were ruthless. These are the people that co-invented crucifixion. They don't love God. They're not going to honor God. They love themselves. They're going to worship their own power and glory. They don't just represent a threat to, Jews, to, the, to the people of God in Judah. They are a global crisis. These are the people that God's going to use to bring justice? These are the, this is God's solution? This is God, the holy, righteous, perfect God of the universe? This is his answer to the problem of wickedness? Habakkuk does not care for that. And so he protests. Now, this is, this is really interesting. So what, what the Bible tells us is that God is holy, God is righteous, God is just, and God hates sin. And that while God is love, God has wrath. But in verse 13, what Habakkuk makes is a very big statement. That God is so holy, so pure, so righteous, that he cannot even look upon sin. Now, this is important because this one verse has massive implications on how we see, connect, and relate with God. See, on the cross, Jesus takes our sins upon his shoulders. 
He bears our sin, pays the price for our sin, becomes the sacrifice for our sin so that we can be spared the wrath of God against sin. And what the gospel tells us is that while Jesus is on the cross, the sky is darkened and Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lath shabbatheni, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My whole life, the explanation for that that I heard from church people and pastors was this. In that moment, when Jesus took the sins of the world upon his shoulders, God had to turn away from him because God in his purity, in his holiness, cannot even look upon sin. Anybody heard that? Okay, guys, you can put your hands up. I'm not going to call on you, I promise. It's fine. Nobody's going to look around and be like, hey, put his hand up because he heard something before. What a weirdo. Like, it's okay. You are allowed to respond. Just so you know, because I know some of you guys are like recovering Baptists and stuff. You are allowed to make noise in church. It's okay. All right? We're not going to, like, it's fine. When something is funny, you're allowed to laugh at it. I, people tell me afterwards, like, oh, that was really funny. And it's like, yeah, your laugh sounds like a mime. Put volume into it. It's fine. No one's going to, it's good. We can make noise. We can pretend we're Pentecostal a little bit. <laughs> There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Now we're awake. Okay. So, <coughs> but this was the view that I'd always heard, right? It was espoused to me is that Jesus on the cross takes the sins of the world on, upon himself and God it can't look at him. So he has to turn his back. And so Jesus in this moment is now alone because the holy and righteous God of the universe cannot look upon sin. This explanation reinforces a religious concept of God. That God loves you. That God cares for you, that God is there for you until you screw up. Then the deal's off, you're on your own, figure it out, you're in trouble because you messed it up, man, that's on you. He tried to save you, he did, he gave you a chance, but you messed it up. And so what happens then, right, is because this is the view that we predominantly hold, we, we mess up and then we go, uh-oh. And we start feeling not just guilt and not just shame, not just a realization of our own imperfection, but we feel a sense of insecurity. Anybody ever felt that? Like, is this it? Did I just mess this up for the last time? Was that the last straw? I know God is good and I know he has grace and I know he tried to save me, but did I push it too far? Did I break the limit of the sin quota that God was willing to overlook and now I'm on my own and doomed? Has anybody ever felt the pressure of that weight? Man, I grew up in church. I lived most of my life feeling like that. Every time I messed up, I'm like, was that it? Maybe the last one was it, okay, but this one, I feel like God's going to be done with me. Do you know why that internal, that heart attitude is so hard to break? Because it's reinforced by this idea. If God could turn his back on Jesus, his own son, whom he loved, who was perfect, who was sinless, who came to earth to fulfill the mission and purpose of God, who was carrying out the mission of God, doing the exact thing that the Father and he had sent him to do in the first place, in his greatest hour of need, in the eternal existence that he has, if in that moment God could turn his back on his son, why do we think he won't turn his back on us? Right, Because if I look at me and I look at Jesus, that is not a particularly close contest of righteousness. I don't stack up to that at all. So if God would turn his back on Jesus, how can I in my sin ever think that, God would, that I wouldn't give him ample reasons to turn his back on me? 
And so what happens then is it creates an insecurity and it creates this doubt and the devil uses that to drive a wedge between us and God. So when we mess up, he just sits there and goes, that's it, that's it. Reason 483, why God is done with you. You know he's good, you know he tried, but man, you just, you couldn't get your act together, so now you're on your own. And it creates this fear and this doubt as to where we stand with God every time we make a mistake. Here's my question. If God can't look upon sin, how did he deal with people in the Old Testament? Right, like when Adam and Eve in the garden, right, when they ate the forbidden fruit for the first time and God is there talking with them, you think he's like, oh, oh, you sinned, my eyes. How did he deal with us before we surrendered to Jesus? Right, to which the answer is like, oh, well, once you have Jesus, you're covered by the blood of Jesus. So God isn't looking at your sin anymore. He's looking at Jesus' sacrifice, so you're good. Okay, but how did we get to Jesus? How did we make that decision for the first time? How did he deal with us before we surrendered? Because we weren't covered in his blood before we surrendered. Right, is he just playing Marco Polo? Like he just closes his eyes like, Marco, try to save you. Just call out. What? See, the problem with this view is that it's not just wrong, it is incredibly harmful. Because when an understanding of how God works is inaccurate with his character, it creates a false approach, a false understanding, and the devil uses that to drive a wedge between us and God, to pull us away from him. So let me explain what's actually happening happening here. When Jesus is on the cross, he is not accusing God of abandoning him. What he is doing is, dun, 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 dun. All right, so what just happened in your head? Right, one of three things, right? You either stopped, collaborated, and listened. You're under pressure, or you're probably not from the 1900s, Right? Because when you hear the beat of a song, the melody of a song, the words of a song that you know, your brain will carry that tune and move into the next stage of it. In fact, this is so hardwired into how our brains worked. In the first century, this was a common Jewish teaching technique that rabbis would use called a remez. See, the first century was an oral tradition society. Everything was passed down verbally. People memorized scripture intently. It was a big part of their culture. So the rabbi would teach, and he would know there are certain verses that everybody in his audience would have memorized. And so rather than quoting or reading the whole thing, he would just say the first line and count on his audience to fill in the rest. What does Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does Psalm 22 begin? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I cry out by day and I get no answer, and by night I find no rest. Every Jewish person in Je- who would have been there hearing Jesus say this would know Psalm 22. And every one of them believed that this psalm was about the Messiah. Jesus is using a remez. What he's doing in this moment is he's looking at the people who were responsible for his death, the people who tortured him, the people that mocked him, the people that less than 24 hours ago had been shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And out of the infinite depth of his love and grace for the very people that were torturing him actively in that moment, he calls out to them to once again tell them who he is, that they might receive and respond to him. Jesus' response to those who kill him is to try to save them. 
That's what's happening here. Say, okay, but it does still say that God can't look at sin, right? This is the problem that happens when we read a verse of Scripture and we ignore the context around it. Look back at verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Or later in verse 13. Why do you idly look at traitors? Two times in his own section, Habakkuk notes that God does in fact look at wickedness, does in fact look at wrong, does in fact see sin. See, what's happening here is the statement he's making is not a declaration of who God is. It's not literal. It's poetic. What Habakkuk is doing is he is wrestling with God because he has some faulty assumptions and he is trying to reconcile his view of God with the reality of God. This statement is not declarative of who God is. It's indicative of Habakkuk's lack of full understanding of the nature and character of God. So I want you to hear me in this church. When you sin, Jesus doesn't turn away from you. When you sin, Jesus doesn't have to look away from you because he's too holy to engage with you. Jesus calls out to you in your sin. He reaches out to you in your sin. He comforts you through your sin. He offers you mercy, grace, and forgiveness in your sin as he sets you free from that sin so that you can walk a new life in him. Remember John chapter 7? There's a woman that gets caught in adultery. The religious leaders bring her to Jesus. They throw her at his feet. They say, hey, the law says we kill her. What do you say? And Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. One by one, the religious leaders leave. And there's the woman alone, guilty and deserving of death. And Jesus says to her, where are those who came to kill you? And she says, they have gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. I want you to understand something. This is a question that I get all the time in different issues and different things. Is What's the church's stance on this? What's the church's position on this? And you can fill in the blank with whatever you want. We don't have a stance. We don't have a position. We have the Bible. We're not forming our own thoughts and ideas like, oh, here's how we think it should go in the world. We go, what's Jesus say? We position ourselves where Jesus is positioned. We stand where Jesus stands. That's it. Well, it's kind of a cop-out answer, isn't it? Okay, let me take it a step further. What does Jesus do with this woman who is caught in sin, guilty of sin, absolutely deserving of death under penalty of the law? He does not condemn her, nor does he condone her sin. That's our stance. That's our position. Okay? So what happens so often in the church is we fall into one of two camps. Either we become condemners or we become condoners. Right? The condemning crew, out of their love for Jesus and his rules and honoring and obeying him, they aggressively judge, criticize, and tear down those who are living in different types of sin. They're wrong. But then there's this other group that's like, ah, we don't want to look like those wackadoodles, so we're going to go over here. We're just not going to talk about sin. We're not going to address these things. We're not going to tell people that what they're doing is wrong, that their choices are wrong, because we don't want them to feel bad or feel judged or feel condemned. I'm not here to judge people. I'm not here to condemn people. I'm just supposed to tell people about the love of Jesus, and that's it. That's my role. Fill in whatever blank you want, whether it's someone who walks in the door who is so religious they don't believe they're capable of sin because they've forgotten what Jesus saved them from. 
They're struggling with sin and they lose that battle more often than they win it. Or they're living in an active lifestyle of willful rebellion against God. Here's my response to them. I'm not going to condemn you. Because you need the same grace that I need. Every single day, the same grace that I'm dependent on, the same grace that I hold my eternity on, I need it just as much as you do. We need it in different places because of different things, but I am just as desperately in need of that grace as you are. So I'm not here to condemn you for that. You know what I'm also not going to do? I'm not going to tell you your sin isn't sin. I'm not going to condone your sin. You see, the, the condemner, they're a Pharisee. The condoner is just a coward that's not willing to say what God says. So this is it. This is the simple solution to how we approach any area of sin, whether it's lifestyle sin, singular sin, struggling with sin, doesn't matter. We don't condemn, we don't condone. We do what Jesus did, which is commission people to repent and walk a new life in Jesus. What we do is we teach the truth in love and in grace. We teach the truth of his word unapologetically in a call that they might be transformed by the love and grace of the gospel. That's our position on everything. So, verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like the crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with the hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will, stand, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. So here's Habakkuk's complaint. It's not fair. It's not right. God, you created people in your image, but you're treating them like they're nothing more than fish just to be used and caught up. And you're using these people that don't love you, that are not going to honor you, that are not going to follow you. They're just ruthless. You can't do that. Because you're holy, you're righteous, you're good. And you can't use wickedness to bring justice. Because if you do, where does it end? Right? If the solution to wickedness existing is more wickedness coming into punishment, you create an infinite loop of war and wickedness. So won't this just go on? If this is your answer, God, doesn't this just go on forever? So what Habakkuk does is he calls God out. And then he says, I'll wait like a watchman on the wall for you to answer me. Now, it's, it's a little brave. Um, but here's what I love about Habakkuk. He doesn't take his ball and go home. So what happens a lot of times in church is, if you've been around church for a while, you've seen this happen. You have people come in, they have an encounter with Jesus, they get really excited. They start to grow, they start to engage, they start to move and follow him. And usually it's around six months later, something happens. And it shakes them. Whether it's encountering a, an aspect of God that is not fitting with their original conception of him, or it's a hardship and struggle that they go through, a question they don't know how to answer, and they start to just kind of pull away. Here's what I love about Habakkuk. He's not pulling away. He's leaning in. He's confused, he's frustrated, he's angry, but he's not taking his ball and going home. He's engaging with God because he wants to understand now his wrestling is raw, it is blunt, but it is beautifully and wonderfully honest. 
See, Habakkuk goes to God. God gives him an answer. And Habakkuk doesn't like that answer. This is something that we all need to understand, church. Because what happens, right? We pray. This is one of my favorite things that church people do, right? We'll pray. We've got a situation that comes up in our life, a struggle that we're dealing with, so we'll put out a prayer request. I want you to pray for this thing, for this issue with me. And then somewhere down the road, that situation resolves itself, and we're satisfied with the solution. And so then we do like a praise report. And what's the thing that we say? Hey, this thing happened, and look, it's good, and everything's worked out. And what's the response? It's a real answer to prayer, right? Oh, God, fix this thing, man. It's a real answer to prayer. I hate everything about that sentence. Because what is it saying, really? The standard by which we determine whether or not God answers a prayer is whether or not we are satisfied with the results. What we do in that statement is that we create a conception of God, that who he is and what he does is dependent on how we feel about it. But God is not a waiter in the restaurant of your life. It is not his job to make sure you get what you ordered in a timely fashion and that you are satisfied with the final product. He doesn't work for you. And so the problem that I have with the statement is not that we're saying, hey, God answered a prayer. It's that we only seem to say it when we get the answer that we wanted. See, the problem that you and I have is the problem that Habakkuk has. We are limited. Our view is limited. Our perspective is limited. Our knowledge is limited. Our understanding is limited. God's is not. We are a vapor, the snap of a fingers, the blink of an eye, and our life in this world is over. But God is eternal. His existence is forever. And we do not understand or have any concept of the full picture that he sees, which makes us unqualified to offer judgments upon it. Okay, so here's the thing. So let's say this happens, all right? So Erica and I get into an excited debate, and she is displeased with me. Guess who I'm not going to for advice? Rowan, because he's four, and his answer will be laser tag. Hey, I'm like, buddy, that's not going to solve this thing, but that's going to be a solution because he doesn't understand enough. Whether you're a grown person, you've been through life, you've seen things, you may not be the smartest person you know, but you've learned in your life how certain things need to be handled, how certain things need to be done. You have some understanding that you have grown in. Who of you, if you experience a hard challenge or a complication in life, is going to go get advice from an infant? Right? They were born like three weeks ago. They open their eyes. They can boop in a diaper, and they can ask, cry for food. Anybody going for them for advice? Here's the part I want you to understand, church. The gap of understanding between you And the infant is infinitely smaller than the gap of understanding that exists between you and God. Understand what I'm telling you? What I'm saying is it would make more sense for you to take life advice, life-changing, transforming advice from an infant that can't even talk than it would for God to take advice or guidance from you. No matter how wise, how learned, how insightful you are, 
what we see in this world is nothing more than one pixel on an Omnimax screen. We see nothing. We understand almost nothing. Even in the depths of our wisdom, we see so little. Which is why Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We are so incredibly blinded by the little bit that we know that we can't even identify the path that leads to death versus a path that seems to life. We go, this is terrible, but I love it. I want it. We don't know what's good for us. If Rowan gets up and I say, Rowan, you can have whatever you want for breakfast. You know what he's going to say? Sweet treat. What do you want for lunch? Sweet treat. What do you want for dinner? Sweet treat. That's the world he lives in. What he wants and what is good for him are not the same. And he is not yet mature enough to even recognize it. So listen to me, church. What you want and what is good for you are not the same. And in this life, you will never be mature enough to even recognize that. Because look at what we pray for and what we don't. Do you pray, God, I hope I lose my job. God, I hope I suffer. God, can you let me struggle today? Everything's just been so blessed and easy and comfortable. I feel like I just need to go through something. God, can you give me a trial to go through? No, we don't pray for those things because we don't like those things. Doesn't mean they're not the best thing for us. We don't see. We don't know. We don't understand. So hear me. God will either give you what you ask for or he will give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. When we pray, when we go to God, the purpose is not to align God's power with our desire. It is to align our desire with his will. But if the only time we are satisfied and pleased with what God does is when he does what we want, how he want, how we want, our faith isn't in God, it's in ourselves. God may not do things the way you would want. He may not do things in the timeline that you would like him to do them. But church, there has never been a prayer in the history of ever that God did not answer. And you need to understand that. Just sometimes the answer that he gives you isn't the answer you were hoping for. And that's okay. Because he knows better. He understands better. The reason I tell Rowan, no, you can't have a sweet treat is not because I want him to cry and be upset that he didn't get what he wants. It's because I care more about his good than his immediate desire. I care more about his benefit than even he in his own moment in life is capable of caring about. My desire for his good is greater than his desire for his own good. And I'm a messed up, selfish person. If that's how I love my son, imagine how a perfect father loves you. Imagine how much greater 
His concern for your good is. So what do we do with a God who doesn't always give us what we ask for or doesn't do it the way we would like him to do it? Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. See, what we like to do is go, God, I want to understand and when I understand, I'll give you my faith. That's backwards. The faith comes first. And those who God historically has given understanding to are those who have placed their trust and their faith in him. It's people like Habakkuk who see a problem. They're not going, I'm done with you. I don't like it. They're going, God, please help me understand this because this doesn't work for me. Turn to God. Trust in him and know that he is good. Here's the beauty of scripture. God, the Bible tells us that God cannot lie. In Romans 8, God, it says God works all things together for the good of those who love him. When you believe that, truly, not just that you hear it up here, you're like, okay, cool, that sounds great. When you believe that in your heart, it changes everything about your life. Because I want you to see this. This is one of the easiest things to miss. God tells Habakkuk, I'm going to use Babylon to bring about justice. Babylon is one of the greatest, most powerful empires in the history of the world. They are so powerful, even at this time, while they're still on their rise, that it says they laugh at the kings of other kingdoms because it's like, <laughs> you got nothing. We're going to wipe you out. You got no ability to even stop us. The greatest threat, the greatest danger, the greatest power, the greatest obstacle that can stack up against you is nothing but a tool in the hands of the Almighty God. Remember the story of Job? The devil wants to mess with Job. What's he got to do? He got to go to God and ask for permission. God says, You can go this far, no further. Where does he stop? Exactly where God told him he had to. When he wants to take it further, he's got to go back to God and ask for more permission. Hey, let me take it further. God says, okay, you can take it this far, but no further. And where does he stop again? Not even the devil steps one toe out of line. Because there is nothing in all creation that exists outside of the control of the almighty God. It's easy to get lost in that, in our finite understanding. Well, then God's responsible for evil, and I took a junior high philosophy class, and that's what that means. It doesn't. God did not cause evil. He's not responsible for evil. What it means is that God is in control of all things, that there is not one atom in all of creation that exists outside of his power. And as his children, there is no greater comfort that you can have. Because if God is good, and God is in control of all things, and God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. What do you have to worry about? Nothing. If God is good, and he's in control of all things, and he works all things together for your good, what do you have to fear? Why do you have anxiety? It's because some part of our hearts has not truly fully accepted all of those things. It's not that we're not trying to. It's not an accusation. It's that our hearts have tried to reject part of God's truth. The God who died on a cross so that he could free you from your sin, call you his child, adopt you into his family, and bring you life, is working all things for good. 
nothing can stop him from doing what he desires to do. And what he desires to do is to bring you life and to work for your good. So yeah, you may be in a situation that's not pleasant. You may not like what you're dealing with, but you don't see the full picture. Don't let your lack of understanding get in the way of your trust. Because we're not supposed to lean on our own understanding. Your understanding is limited. Your understanding is imperfect. Your understanding is most of the time wrong. But Jesus isn't. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. This is the key. It doesn't matter what's happening in your life. There is peace, a permanent, perfect peace that you were meant to have, that you are not fully having because you haven't yet grasped hold of this truth. There is a perfect joy that Jesus gives to all who belong to him that you are not fully experiencing until you grab hold of this truth. There is a perfect confidence and assurance that you have in Jesus out of his depth and love, the depth of his love for you that you have not experienced yet because you are still not fully committed to this truth. That all it is is simple. You don't have to understand because he's in control. You don't have to control because he's in control. You don't have to worry because he's in control. You don't have to be afraid because he's in control. If you believe that God will work all things together for your good, then none of that other stuff matters. You understand what I'm saying? All we need to experience the perfection of joy and peace and confidence in him that no storm or struggle or hardship in life could ever take from you is this. You trust in Jesus. You love Jesus. You obey Jesus. It's that simple. And in that, you are freed from all of the worries, the stresses, the doubts of this world, because it does not matter what happens in the world. It does not matter what's happening around you. It does not matter. Not that those things are impactful, but they don't define you, and they are not your ultimate truth, because God will rescue you from them and will work all things together for your good. So trust in Him. Church, the foundation of that trust looks like this. We take communion, we, we take it together in remembrance of what Jesus did for us and the suffering that he, had, that he endured on our behalf. If you didn't grab one of these when you come in, they're on the tables there in the back if you want to grab one. What this reminds us, and the reason we take this repeatedly is to repeatedly remind ourselves, this is what Jesus endured for you. This is how you know you can trust him, how you know you can rely on him because the God who went to a cross for you is not going to abandon you. The Jesus who endured so much is faithful to bring to completion the work he began in you. The reason you don't have to be afraid, have to doubt, have to worry about anything is because the King of kings and the Lord of lords died on a cross to make you his. And nothing will ever change that. So let's take this together. Jesus did for us on the cross was to cover our unrighteousness with his righteousness. To cover the death that we brought on ourselves with a life that only he can give. And here's the beauty of his promise that I want you to hear. Jesus cannot fail. 
And when he seeks to save you, he will save you. That nothing in this world is greater than this blood. Than the symbol that we take up together as we remember his love for us. Let's take it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are always working even when we don't see that you're working, that you are always moving when we don't even understand how you're moving. God, I pray that you would grow our faith, that we would trust in you in all things, with every aspect of our life, with every aspect of our heart. God, that you would build that trust in you, that we would lean on you and on you alone. And that we would encounter you with the growing love and desire to share your grace and your hope with the world. God, the world is messed up and broken. I pray that you would give your people peace, that you would comfort us in our struggles, that you would lift us up in our pain, and that we would see the depth of who you are, that we might love and obey you in all that we do. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.